1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 61st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is anxiety, the number one issue in the workplace today. I'm joined by Chester Elton. He is the co-author, along with Anthony Gostick uh, and, there's, and his son, Anthony Gostick, of a book called Anxiety at Work. Eight Strategies to Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. The publisher is Harper Business. Chester has written, along with Adrian, three previous New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. Uh, Chester is also ranked number two among organizational cultural experts globally and the top 10 for leadership welcome to the show, Chester.
0: Well, Dan, thank you so much for having me. I I, I love that you're promoting great books and for people to be curious and discover. More than anything, Dan, thank you for loaning us your platform to talk about this really important issue in the workplace, which is anxiety. The pandemic shone a big light on it, and it's only going to have a bigger tale as we go through. So I am delighted to be with you, my friend.
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much for that. And in fact, yes, your topic couldn't be more appropriate to the age we live in. Uh, There's the pandemic, there is artificial intelligence and the increase of automation and algorithms ruling our day. Uh, There are so many things causing anxiety for workers in the workplace. We will have plenty to cover. Give us a bit of an overview of the book, if you don't mind, and then we'll, we'll plunge on from there.
0: You bet. And thanks for asking. You know, Adrian and I, um, have this is our 14th book together, by the way.
1: Oh, 14th. OK. Yeah,
0: we, we, we never imagined it would get, uh, <laughs> you know, and we, we focus a lot on culture. You know, we started with recognition in the workplace. We wrote a series of carrot books. We moved into culture with all in and teamwork and so on. Well, during the pandemic, it became very apparent that you could not have a healthy culture with the levels of anxiety that exist in the workplace. And so we turned our attention to that. Now, not only is it a big workplace issue, for us, it's very much a personal issue. We both had children that have dealt with anxiety uh, for a long time, dealt with it successfully successfully. Which was very encouraging. And for us, as, as we like to, Anthony is, is Adrian's son, who's on the on the cover. He says, you know, you old guys don't talk about anxiety. For us young people, that's all we talk about. So having him as one of our co-authors and giving us that generational insight was really important. So what we did is we dove into a million engagement surveys we have in our database over 100,000 motivators assessment, which is our proprietary measure. And we took a look and said, what are the big issues? And we came down to eight practices that really help leaders in the workplace deal with this growing issue of anxiety at work. Was that helpful?
1: Oh, sure. I think that is helpful. Uh, We'll get into those eight strategies. And you have, you know, really a whole package of solutions on each of those eight strategies. So there's a lot of Practical advice in this book. Let's go back and just kind of finish the level settings, as it were. So, workplace anxiety. Uh, let me just start on a real personal level. How does anxiety manifest itself for people, including Anthony, both physically and emotionally? What, what does this mean? What's the cost in human terms and, and as well as in financial terms for companies?
0: Yes, it's 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 staggering. Actually, you know, conservative estimates uh, lost work productivity due to uh, mental health and anxiety, in particular, is over sixty billion dollars a year just in North America. You go globally, and the number you know doubles. So here's what was really interesting, Dan, is in 2018 pre pandemic, about eighteen percent of employees surveyed said that it's some kind of anxiety. Uh, 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 debilitating anxiety. In other words, it, it got in the way of being productive at work. So about one in five. In 2020, surveys come out again, it's up to 30%. Now, here's where the generational difference got to be really interesting, right? Is that in millennials in Gen Z, so you know, early 20s to early 30s, it jumps up to 42%. So again, this is these are levels we've never seen before. We always have had some, right? Now, the other number that became really shocking to us is 75% of those millennials in Gen Z had said that within the last few years, they had left a job due to mental health reasons. So when you think about trying to attract and retain great talent, particularly these really smart and digitally savvy, uh, you know, young people coming out of university, that Three quarters of them are leaving jobs due to uh, some kind of a mental uh, illness, some kind of mental disability is a number that just can't be ignored. So those are some numbers that I, I think are worthy of our attention and absolutely focus on a solution. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah, they are so big. And this is the workforce one needs. And yet you point out in the book that about 90% of employed adults, which obviously includes the boomers as well, uh, say that they don't dare confide their anxiety to yeah. their bosses. That is, you say so aptly in the book, they have anxiety about their anxiety. <laughs> um. Can you talk more about that situation and how we're going to rectify it before we jump into the specific strategies and so forth?
0: Sure. Well, you know, you and I are of a similar age, you know would we in the workplace early in our careers ever admit to being anxious or stressed out or not be able to handle the workload? Absolutely not. It was just a sign of weakness, right? Yeah, Dan can't take it. Chester can't take the pressure, right? And so what did we do? We, we hit it. And, and, and that continues to be the case. You know, the fact that only one in 10 will or, or feel comfortable confiding in their manager and supervisor shows you the stigma that's attached to this particular issue. Now you talk about health, forget mental health, physical, just health. I don't believe, and I'd I'd love to see if you agree with me on this. I think you will, but you never know. Uh, Can can you be mentally, or uh, excuse me, can you be physically healthy and not be mentally healthy? What's your take on that?
1: Uh, Only to a degree. It's going to corrode you eventually. I mean, the body can take stress for a bit, and then it just starts to fall apart, which is one of the reasons why reorgs don't work well, because usually the rumors go out early, and they're pretty accurate, and everyone starts to fester, and uh, they might still be jogging and everything, but eventually the mental stress of do I have a job and is it the job I want Uh, just gets to every part of your being.
0: Exactly. So, really, the answer is no. You know, you can't be physically healthy if you're not mentally healthy. So, in the book, as as we get into strategies, it's all based around three basic premises that we need to normalize the conversation around anxiety and mental health in the workplace. We need to, in particular, destigmatize. The idea that if you're, you know, if you're having mental health issues or anxiety issues or stress issues, that somehow there's a stigma attached to that, right? Look, it's a health issue. So we need to destigmatize the conversation. And then thirdly, and this is the revolution, Dan, (laughs) is that we need to empathize with people. So, so interesting. I was talking to a good friend of mine, Quint Studer, who's involved in, you know, all kinds of medical Uh, boards and hospital boards all across the nation. And he said, you know, if you'd asked me three years ago, what are the characteristics of great leaders? I would have said transparent, good communicators, authentic, inspiring. He said, ask me now, there's only one attribute and it's empathy. If you are a leader that can't empathize with what's going on with your work, nothing else matters. What do you think of that? I think a lot
1: of that, because for one thing, part of my experiences is, is that I'm a emotions expert and a facial coder, and I did work uh, for a big ten basketball program. And the coach had won a national championship, but was longer through his career, obviously older than his uh, players. And there was a real gap, and I would try to get him to do the empathy. Game as I so to speak. And he could bounce into it for a little bit, but his most natural thing was to go back to scolding and keeping his distance. And it just wasn't working for the players and I could see it. So no, no, I think for this generation and just for all of us, really, actually, uh, empathy is 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 crucial.
0: Absolutely. And you know what's really interesting when you talk about normalizing the conversation, destigmatizing and empathizing, the number one thing that helped normalize the conversation and made it not just, you know, a lot of talk about psychological safety, which I'm a huge fan of, also to make it emotionally safe at work is when the leader shared his or her story of how they dealt with anxiety. As soon as they became vulnerable there and they could empathize and open the door, everything got better really fast because it was emotionally safe.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important principle. And one of the other statistics, before we get into the strategies, you mentioned that black people, for instance, African Americans are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems. I assume that's because of risk of, uh, you know, microaggressions, uh, lack of inclusion. Is that uh, on par?
0: Absolutely. yeah, Spot on. You know, uh, again, am I emotionally safe at work? What can I talk about? What's appropriate? You know, we talk about in in the book, you know, finding an ally at work that we've all felt at some point like the other person, you know, whether it was, you know, in uh, middle, uh, middle school being the last one picked for the basketball team or the baseball team, whatever that might be. Imagine, you know, if you were feeling that way all the time. You know, maybe you're the only woman on the team, the only person on the team where English is your second language. You're the only LGBTQ plus on the team. You know, you're the only African-American on the team. How about if you're the only Muslim on the team and you've got to find a place three times during the workday where you can say your prayers? If, 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 if If you can't be who you are, if you're not comfortable being who you are and you're hiding it, that stress, that anxiety just builds up over time. And it erodes your confidence, it erodes your ability to produce, and it erodes your ability to really be a good teammate. So, yes, I think you're spot on.
1: Okay, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if there's a fundamental tension between who you are and what your values are and feeling like your experiences are, are validated and recognized and appreciated by other people around you. I, I mean, that's just an inherent stress that's not going to go away and it's going to have its impact. So let's let's get into these eight strategies. Um, is there maybe uh, one that's the, the key linchpin or a favorite one of yours? Let's start the conversation in that kind of way.
0: Well, you know, we talk about right off the bat that uncertainty is the number one driver of anxiety. Okay. We talk a lot about in, in our work in culture, say, look, when you're going through any kind of transition, whether it's, as you mentioned earlier, a reorganization or a merger acquisition or an economic downturn or a pandemic, right? That two things really need to accelerate. The first one is communication because anxiety will fill in the gap, right? When the the old school is no news is good news, it's not true anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No news is, holy crap, what's going on? We're all going to lose our jobs, you know? Uh, So when there's that void of communication and information, anxiety fills the gap, right? With rumor, innuendo, and fear. And none of those things are positive. The second thing that needs to accelerate is gratitude. I need to know that what I'm doing is valued. And there's no better way for leaders and teammates to give you validation than simple and regular expressions of gratitude. You know, appreciating all those little things that go right every day instead of highlighting the few things that went wrong, like your basketball coach. Quick to criticize, slow to praise. In the workplace, it really is a cocktail for anxiety and stress and turnover right and 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 that's where we really started the book in saying look people need to know where they came from why they're here where they're going what's my career path what am i doing that's valued that i should continue to do are my reports you know in the way that you want them am i hitting the deadlines because without that validation i'm going to keep doing the work over and over different ways until you tell me, Hey, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's, let's head that off. So absolutely. We talk about uncertainty is the number one driver of anxiety. So up your communication.
1: Okay. So you mentioned in the book, um, you know, if you had to go to like two key principles, it sounded like one of them was a sense of mastery or self-control of your environment. And the other one is social support. Can you tie those into uh, the uncertainty we've been talking
0: about? Well, sure. You know, Gallup did some great work on this, you know, uh, highly engaged employees have a best friend at work. Yep. This is the socialization that I've got people at work that, yes, they're my coworkers and I depend on them. I, I also have a friendship there. I've got a confidence that there's a trust there that they'll look out for me and I will look out for them. And when you have those social bonds, things get really good really fast. Again, you know, the social bonds can translate into having an ally at work, someone that knows your story. Someone yeah. that knows that there are certain things, you know, you may be a single parent, that there are going to be times when you've got to leave early, I will step in and and fill in the gap for you. Those social bonds are so important. And when so many of us went remote and went digital, that became even more important because we didn't have the chance to go to lunch together or go for drinks after work or, or you know, do those retreats and do the blindfold trust fall you know, like <laughs> that we're missing, right? And so, you know, one-on-one communication i think through the pandemic has really been highlighted it was always a best practice it's now really a, a must have best practice that i'm checking in with dan regularly and just saying hey how's it going how, how are you doing today you know talk to me a little bit about the projects and stuff what, what what are some of the resources you need what can i do to help and when you when you notice that things aren't quite right you know that we say, "Look, never in the history of the world has telling someone to calm down ever calmed down anybody, right?" Yes. So yes. people get stressed. Hey, Dan, calm down! For heaven's <laughs> sake, that's not going to work. Simple, um, you know, tips that we give leaders and teammates as well. Hey, I've noticed, you know, that you're starting to show up late to meetings. Is is your workload too heavy? Is there anything I can do to help? You know, uh, and, and and that empathy piece. Hey, listen, I, I, I've noticed that things aren't, don't seem to be quite right. Let me tell you something. I'm struggling with teaching my kids at home. You know, now that school is out with camps and stuff, I'm, I'm having a tough time juggling all the balls. If that's happening to you, please let me know and let me know how I can help. Those one-on-one conversations where you really kind of figure out what's the story and how can I help.
1: Yeah, no, we need the intimacy of a conversation one-on-one and, you know, ideally in person, but we do what we can these days. Right. So, so uncertainty is number one. Uh, what's the – if you had to choose the next one, um, I'm asking you to choose among your favorite children here in a manner of speaking, <laughs> but uh, what's the next one? Maybe you tee up for us.
0: Yeah, you know, one that's really interesting because we've talked about several already, you know, in and of. We have. We have, I, yes. I think it's so important. Social bonds so important perfectionism is one that as we've been rolling this out to different organizations, that gets a lot of play, particularly with, you know, millennials and Gen Z. And that is this idea that my work has to be perfect, perfect, right? Because that's job security. Well, as you know, the curve of productivity, I mean, you know, there's not good, there's good, there's very good. And then very good to perfect The amount of effort that you've got to put in to get from very good to perfect, as my brother Byron often says, that juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? (laughs) (laughs) That perfectionism is often the enemy of just getting stuff done. Uh, We tell a really interesting story in the book. It's one of my favorites of Maria Callas. Now, Maria Callas, if you're an opera fan, is like, I'm Canadian. So uh, we would say she's the Wayne Gretzky of, of opera singers, right? Well, she got so hung up on perfectionism that everything had to be perfect, right down to her rehearsal times, to where her coffee would be offstage, to her her wardrobe, and so. They tell a story where, if anything was off, she would fly into a rage. They tell a story where her coffee wasn't where it was supposed to be offstage. She literally stormed out of the theater in full, you know, costume to the barista across the street, demanding her coffee, and they were all freaked out because it was, you know, it's opera. She's holding this giant dagger. (laughs) freaked out everybody right Uh, and and here's what's really interesting opera singers can sing into their 60s she retired in her early 40s and in the interviews with her she said you know i just got so anxious about everything everything had to be perfect if i missed a note it was crushing she said anxiety didn't steal my voice it stole my courage uh, and I thought, wow. Now, Joan Sutherland, arguably the second greatest opera singer in the world, just loved to sing. Sang into her early 60s. Knew that she'd make mistakes and enjoyed the process. You can see how anxiety and, and that commitment to perfectionism can really be debilitating. And we're seeing it more and more in the millennial Gen Z uh, generations. Uh, well, that's
1: interesting. I just by chance happened to have watched the other night on Netflix, the documentary about the admission scandal to oh, universities. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of anxiety there. And obviously there's performance anxiety on the test and getting into your select school. Uh, but, you yeah, know, it was all bathed in what, you know, millennials and, you know, I guess we're even on to the next generation is concerned about. So um, it really, as a subtopic, if I had to pick out, you know, an SEO search on it, search terms, uh, you know, perfectionism would have been one of them by all means. Uh, Maybe a third strategy here. We've hit uncertainty. We've heard, we've hit perfectionism. Uh, Another one.
0: Yeah. You know, I I think this idea of how to turn um, less into more, and this deals with overload. You know, we're seeing an, an extraordinary amount of burnout, You know, everybody thought, oh, we're working remote. Productivity is going to go down. And what did we find? Productivity actually went way up, right? People didn't have commute times. They didn't have social times at work. I mean, they just worked. And because people were worried about their jobs, again, they were working harder and harder and harder. And it's leading to this, you know, record levels of burnout. Again, what are the parameters? Uh, what are the expectations what are the deadlines and and what is good enough right back to the perfectionism let's make sure that uh, that that we're evenly distributing the loads that we're not getting carried away because one of the things we do and it's just human nature you know dan you're incredibly capable so what do i do i give you more yeah and, and and you prove that you can do more so what do I do? I give you more. Right? And we just pile it on. Um, great uh, example of this is Mercy Niwe, who's an executive at the World Bank uh, that I've coached for a long time. She's that person, always happy, always engaged, always gets everything done Well, they wanted to promote her. She said, you know, I've got two young kids. I'm getting my master's at Georgetown University. She works in D.C. She said, this is going to be too much to go. Oh, Mercy, you always say that. And yet you always get it done. So she said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll do it under certain parameters. One is no meetings on Fridays. We'll work like dogs Monday through Thursday. Friday's the catch-up day. And at six o'clock Friday, all communication stops. Our people need to rejuvenate. They need to recharge. And they said, well, what about productivity? She goes, let me try it and see what happens. And again, productivity went up. You know, that we we can get to this thing where just more is more. No, in a lot of cases, less is more. If we set the parameters and we set the guidelines. Now, that works for, for Mercy and her group, right? Doesn't necessarily mean it works for everybody. And yet you've got to find those ways to manage that workload. Because if you can't, very few people will say, hey, too much. We'll always take out more because we want to prove our worth. It's up to the team. It's up to the leader to say, hey, let's make sure we're not burning people out. Is it, it, does that make sense to you, Dan?
1: Uh, sure it does. I, I guess you, you're making yourself the Mies van der Rohe of uh, workplace productivity. <laughs> Less is more. Uh, and in fact, I, there was two really specific uh, suggestions you had in the book, because under each of these strategies, you have a whole package, usually about, what, six, seven, eight different uh, ideas, uh, possibilities for implementation. There's two I really like that I think fit this mode pretty well. One is that you actually suggested that employees might vote, if I'm getting this correct, on their productivity growth, what quotas they might want to hit. And the other one was just like I having to be the, the grandson of a farmer, you rotate your crops, you rotate your schedules in this case. People might go from a high load, high load stress role to one that's less stressed, for instance. I thought that was really fascinating.
0: Yeah. And see, this is all, all about is my voice being heard, right? Um, back to your basketball coach. Command and control it's my way or the highway. I say jump, you say how high, right? Now it's more uh, collaborative. And boy, leaders that get into this mode of, uh, well, tell me what you all think. Now, at a certain point, we've got to make a decision and go. I get that. Let's get some input. You know, and, and these ideas of like rotating from high stress to low, st- low stress and, and voting on, on, on quotas and so on, this is all the voice of the team, the voice of the employee. And we've really found uh, through our research that when you're in a situation, in a culture where your voice can be heard, even if they don't take your suggestions, you've had that chance to to put your case forward, engagement goes up, right? Security, yeah, makes sense. Productivity, innovation, it all goes up when you listen to the voice of the team.
1: And what does this mean? Because, I mean, lots of trends seem to suggest that uh, organizations are flatlining, that managers might be more you know, supervisors or people who uh, set up teams, but that the team is really where the work's going to happen in the future. Are, are you seeing that? How does this, what you're suggesting here, play into that?
0: You know, it, it really is, you know, when you, when you deal with these kind of issues and anxiety, so much of it is very much unique and individual to each team. All I can say is get to know your team and and figure out what works for you. Because if you're doing it right, if you've got the relationships where people feel safe, where they feel their voices are heard. With that as a foundation, you can find your way to what works for your team. And in every case we have seen, productivity hasn't flatlined. It's gone up. There's that trust. There's that excitement. You know, people come to work with energy as opposed to dread. And and that, I think, is the biggest difference.
1: Yeah, no, I I think it's great. I mean, if you're shut down, you're always going to cease to suggest ideas and innovation is going to dry up and everything else Long after it, I want to step back to a to a meta level because there was a a comment in the book uh, because you've interviewed lots of people and they might have been people with the World Bank. They could also be people who are you know down in the rank and file. And you said that you found that the majority of younger people express the view, in effect, that capitalism, as they've experienced it so far in their careers, has let them down. What does that mean for, for where we're headed? I mean, it seems like we have a new economic crisis every few years, so maybe we're moving out of this one, but there'll be a next one to come. But they seem to have a bigger view that there's, there's a fault with capitalism. How does your studies and all these many books you've now done, where, where do you see this game headed?
0: Such an interesting question, Dan. Um, I don't think anybody really knows where it's all going. You know, if we could forecast stuff like that, we probably would have bought Amazon when it was 10 bucks sure. and made a killing. Um,
1: but by gut instincts. Gut yes.
0: Instincts. Well, I'll give you my guess. And and this is proved out in a lot of our research. You know, we have this wonderful motivators assessment. And when we looked at millennials and Gen Zs in particular, the top three motivators were impact, learning, and family. So this idea that, What we do and what we make has to have a positive impact on our employees, on our customers, on the environment, on our communities. It can't just be about making money. You see, they've seen their parents' jobs dry up because, in their view, capitalism found a way to make it cheaper in China or Mexico, and their parents lost their jobs. Yep. You know, the financial crisis where these predatory loans took advantage of the poor and the the, uh, unsophisticated when it came to, you know, financial things. They've seen this all go crazy. They've seen, you know, think about when we grew up and when we were going to school. Did we ever have an active shooter drill? Did you and I ever go to a movie theater and think, what's the fastest way out of here in case somebody pops up with a gun? you know, did we ever go to college and say, where's the bell tower? And how do I stay out of the line of sight? You know, where are this, where can I lock myself into a closet where I can be? All these stressors, all this anxiety. And and they they come back and take a look and say, well, who's making money on all this stuff? It's all about making a buck. It's not about making a difference. And this is where you're seeing these, this pushback on, you know, look, I want you to make money. I want you to stay in business. How are you doing that? Are you putting more plastic in the ocean? Are you putting more uh, carbon monoxide into the atmosphere? Are you are you supporting the, you know the refugees and and the poor? All this kind of stuff. Is there work-life balance? Family that popped up for millennials and Gen Z. So interesting. They want a life. They saw their parents work for 30 years for the same company only to see their you know, their 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 financial packages and their health packages eaten up because somebody was corrupt somewhere and it was all gone. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 should we be surprised that the younger people are saying it's got it's got there's something better than this. And it can't be just rampant capitalism. You know, this compassionate capitalism that we saw with Whole Foods and so on and, and some of these wonderful companies buy a pair of shoes. We donate a pair of shoes you know, to the poor in, in, in Peru and in Colombia. These are, are places where, you know, you're going to attract these really smart and engaging people and say, it's got to be more than just making a buck. We want to make a buck. Make no mistake about it. It's got to be more than just that.
1: that- yeah, no, know I, I very much agree. I think, you know, if you're going to have a motivated workforce, they're going to find that extra level based on it tying into their value system. Yep and something they believe in. Um, I think that's probably what we saw with the uh, CEO sh- uh, roundtable that they said, yeah, we have to move from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. Uh, we'll see if they live up to that. But uh, to all these fears of of the millennials and the way in which they might have a jaded viewpoint, I can say that back in the financial crisis of 2008, my favorite cartoon showed a banker on a ledge as if he's about to jump. The second frame of the cartoon, he's lying in the street face down But he's on a cell phone and he says to his friend, oh, me, I'm fine. I landed on a taxpayer. Exactly. And I think a lot of people felt that way.
0: Oh, sure. You know, things will change because they have to change. And I think the younger generations that are coming up have a pretty good perspective of the world they want. And it's going to be their world. They should craft it.
1: I totally agree. Well, Chester, our time's about up. I think I could talk to you for an hour. Easy. (laughs) Uh, I've got a kindred spirit with me here. That's wonderful. I want to thank you for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 61, Anxiety, the number one issue in the workplace today. Uh, My guest is Chester Elton. He is a co-author along with Adrian Gostick and Anthony Gostic of Anxiety at Work: Eight Strategies That Help Teams Build Resilience, Handle Uncertainty, and Get Stuff Done. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by visiting my company's website at the three Ws or you can go to the New Books Network and under the Special Series Programming, you'll find everything that I've covered so far. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. I'm going to give listeners a two-for-one bargain today. First, the great William Shakespeare, who said, present fears are less than horrible imaginings. And finally, Lily Tomlin, who said, for fast-acting relief, try slowing down. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.